0: You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer powered, listener supported,
1: Community Radio from South Central Indiana. Good afternoon, reporting remotely for WFHB. This is Don Guerra.
2: And I'm Nikki Stewart Ingersoll. This is the WFHB local news from Monday, March 7th, 2022.
1: Later in the program, WFHB correspondent Zero Rose continues his conversation with Emily Hamilton, Senior Research Fellow and Director of the Urbanity Project at George Mason University. Stay tuned to hear part two of the conversation in today's feature report.
2: Also, coming up in the next half hour, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. But first, your local headlines.
1: On March 3rd at the Monroe County Board of Health meeting, board members voted to rescind the mask mandate. Indiana University Vice Provost of Communications Kirk White informed the board that IU students will no longer be required to wear masks. He said that they will still be advised to wear masks if they would like to protect themselves from the virus. Carol Tolukian asked whether or not the students in the medical school will be required to wear masks.
3: Well, if you're in a clinical clinical setting, um, we uh, were quite happy with with you requiring masks uh, where there is, uh, you know, patient contact, that sort of thing. and needs that level of protection. Uh, that's OK. So at, in clinical settings, at our quarantine and isolation facility, that staff that staffs that uh, will continue to mask. And of course, there's still a TSA requirement for mass transit that last I checked is in effect until the 18th. And so that means that campus buses will continue to
1: have a mask requirement. White said that they will be watching out for an increase in COVID-19 cases when students return from spring break. Director of the Health Department Penny Caudle shared that the gravity testing site will be phased out by April 30th as the state prepares for a more endemic phase response. Caudle informed the board that the state will have more mobile testing site units available in the future.
3: And the state purchased 10 of these mobile units. So they will now be available to us for a multitude of things. So it won't just be COVID focused. If we have a hepatitis outbreak, you know, we we're dealing with in 2019, I think hepatitis A. Um, and so we could request those mobile units to come down and help us um, respond to those kinds of things. Or if we want to have a back-to-school <laughs> clinic and we want them to come down and give us some extra help, we could request
4: them for that.
1: Caudle also updated the board on Monroe County's current COVID-19 status. She said that the transmission level has decreased significantly.
3: Our positivity, our cases by day, you can see this the big drop, and right now, um, we were today. Our rolling average was at 16 um, average a day. So yesterday it was right around 20. So you can see that it's continuing to drop. So we're pleased with those numbers.
1: The next board of health meeting will be held on March 31st.
2: At the Bloomington Board of Public Works meeting on March 1st, Assistant Director for the Arts Holly Warren asked for approval to close 4th Street for the Parks and Recreation International Food and Art Festival on April 10th.
5: I'm working uh, on this festival in collaboration with both the Parks and Recreation Department and the Community and Family Resources Department. Um, So uh, the application is for a permit for a new festival. This would be the first year that this festival would take place. Uh, It's slated to happen on Sunday, April 10th from 2 to 6 p.m. And it would feature a slew of arts vendors and potentially arts performers and also food vendors. in the parking lot that's at Dunn Street and 4th Street and potentially also on 4th Street between Dunn and Grant. So we're requesting that Dunn and Grant actually be closed as part of this festival with the closure starting at 10 a.m. on the 10th and going all the way until 8 p.m. So we have enough time to do the shutdown. Um, We've been working very closely with restaurants in the area to make sure that they are aware that the event is happening. We've also been letting them, inviting them to participate as vendors at the festival.
2: Adam Wasson asked for clarification on the street closure listed on the application. It was confirmed that 4th Street would be closed between Dunn Street and Grant Street. Board member Kayla Cox Deckard mentioned that the event would be free to the public.
5: And uh, we did confirm during the work session that the event is free to attend. So uh, anyone who wants to come through the event is welcome and there's no
2: uh, fee for that as well. The motion to approve the road closure passed unanimously. The next Board of Public Works meeting will be held on March 15th.
1: Up next, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. KiteLine airs each Friday at 5.30 p.m. on WFHB. The program is available online at WFHB.org or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: On January 31st, A disturbance involving at least 10 prisoners and eight corrections officers broke out in a mess hall of the Five Points Correctional Facility in New York. After prisoners refused orders from guards, guards escalated the conflict with physical violence, which led to several prisoners joining in the melee. The conflict ended when guards deployed pepper spray, subduing and handcuffing the defiant prisoners, seven of whom were transferred to other facilities pending charges, and three of whom were transferred to segregation cells within five points.
7: An unknown number of prisoners are on hunger strike at the Alexander Correctional Institution in North Carolina in response to a variety of issues including lack of basic sanitation, delay of mail, retaliation for filing grievances, and restriction of recreation time. According to the North Carolina Department of Public Safety, there are only two prisoners on strike and they are each On individual strikes. Friends and family members of those in prison, as well as prisoners themselves, say the number of strikers is much higher. They say that the hunger strike began at the beginning of the month and that at least some prisoners are still on strike.
0: On Wednesday, February 2nd, a disturbance was reported at North Central Unit Prison in Calico Rock, Arkansas. In a press release by the Department of Corrections, the disturbance started because the prisoners, quote, were not complying with staff instructions, end quote. The release said 18 prisoners participated in three different barracks. Prison staff allegedly responded with pepper spray. Two prisoners went to the hospital with lacerations and were released the following day. More details of what caused the disturbance are unknown.
6: On February 3rd, four prisoners escaped from a county jail in McCurtain County, Oklahoma. Authorities allege that a contractor, who is also the brother of one of the escaped detainees, had left a pair of pliers in the ceiling of the shower to aid the escape. Authorities also alleged that a prison guard aided in their escape. All four escapees, as well as the guard and the brother, were later arrested. The last escapee was arrested nearly two weeks after the escape in Sherman, Texas, over 100 miles away. Three detainees
7: escaped from the Sullivan County Jail in Tennessee on February 4th by crawling out of the facility's ventilation ducts and up to the roof. One was recaptured one week later, and the other two died during their time on the land. Their cause of death has not yet been explained publicly. According to the sheriff, the escape was the result of a combination of facility failure and human errors. The facility is designed to hold 619 detainees and currently has a population of 925. The design of the facility and overcrowding sure works against us, the sheriff said.
0: On February 14th, at least eight prisoners took over the third floor of the Stevens Correctional Center in Welch, West Virginia. According to official reports, the incident began as a fight between prisoners, but quickly escalated into an uprising with prisoners damaging appliances and other prison infrastructure within their unit. The uprising lasted several hours and ended in the early morning of February 15th when local law enforcement from multiple jurisdictions stormed the unit.
6: At least 42 ICE detainees housed in the Orange County Jail in New York began a hunger strike on February 16th in response to racist and aggressive treatment by guards and low-quality food. Quote, this is something that's been bubbling up for a very long time over a whole host of issues, said Perry Mechanic, a lawyer for the Legal Aid Society. Quote, the most immediate issue is treatment by the guards, who are saying racist things and have been abusive and aggressive. It's also hard for people to access a doctor there. Advocates say jail officials retaliated against strikers by transferring some of them to segregation taking away tablets and reducing food portions. The strike ended on February 20th after negotiations with ICE. Around February
7: 19th, two juveniles incarcerated at the Acadiana Center for Youth in St. Martinville, Louisiana, escaped the facility. The recent escape is another in a string of escapes and other incidents that have taken place in facilities managed by the Louisiana Office of Juvenile Justice recently. According to the sheriff, the teens were arrested ten and a half hours later at a truck stop five miles from the facility. Three female
0: detainees incarcerated at the Johnson City Detention Facility in Tennessee walked away from work detail on February 22nd. Later that day, a man was arrested for allegedly picking the trio up and driving them to an undisclosed location. At this time, the three have not yet been arrested. You can
2: find out more
3: at PerilousChronicle.com.
8: In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Zero Rose continues his conversation with Emily Hamilton, Senior Research Fellow and Director of the Urbanity Project at George Mason University. Rose asks our guests about a range of issues, mainly focusing on affordable housing. Stay tuned to hear part two of this ongoing series on the WFHB Local News. Our conversation begins with the host posing to our guest, how will climate refugees impact Indiana?
9: Yeah, I know they've done some incentivizing. I think they've pulled back some things at the state level and are kind of pushing it back to the local about incentivizing people to do remote work. And the idea here, as I have seen it, is that they're encouraging people to move to Indiana and work remotely somewhere else, and then bring that revenue to Indiana. So it's kind of a whole strange inversion going on there. And again, kind of can't completely cut out these issues of climate and environment. It seems that there's a lot of people from the coasts that are moving into Indiana. Seems cheap compared to what they've known on the coast. And I know the population has increased in Indiana, while other Midwestern states it has decreased. I don't know the exact, you know, demographic breakdowns of where people are coming from and where they're landing, but have you seen any of that affecting these affordability issues, these kind of climate refugees in a way, these migrations?
4: Well, I don't know if uh, domestic migration is being driven by what I'd call climate refugees at this point, perhaps in some very specific parts of the country, but certainly the, the shifts in demand that have come about because of increased opportunities from remote work have led to at least short-term housing affordability challenges in places that that may not have experienced those types of demand shocks recently.
9: Yeah, I was thinking in terms of, you know, some of the places that had all the issues with the wildfires, it it kind of affects whole swaths and regions, not just where the fire has been with the, air quality situation when that smoke is rolling everywhere and then the mega drought as they're calling it in the southwest i remember years back that it seemed that everybody was migrating southwest you know texas other places like that for the the greater job market and everything and it just kind of seems like it's coming back in the the other direction a little bit certainly one of the local things going on here is that the city is trying to annex uh, Again, I'm sure this is fairly a universal experience as cities grow. Years back, there was talk of peak growth or setting a limit on how far the city would grow out. And that was with environmental kind of considerations against sprawl in mind. But don't hear about that much anymore as the city is looking to annex some areas, some of which they've already put sewage and water out to. And of course, there's been a backlash of people that don't want to come under the higher taxes. I know taxes and regulations is some of the areas that you've researched on as well. Do you you have like particular models that you guys put forth as solutions to these kind of conflicts, ways to lessen, you know, the burden that it would be seen as to be annexed into the city?
4: Uh, I have not done research on annexation policy. There are certainly trade offs in cases where residents may currently have lower county tax rates who don't want to pay a higher city tax rate in exchange for city services. In some cases, there's also an issue of development not paying for itself from a fiscal perspective. So, for example, if a new development is going to require a lot of new infrastructure, it's often best to have impact fees in place that are going to cover the cost of that new infrastructure in order to create a political situation where residents aren't opposing new development on the grounds that it's going to raise their own property taxes.
9: Yeah, that seems to be a prevalent model particularly here in Indiana, to give all the tax breaks and every incentive possible for corporations to come in, you know, and choose choose that community to place and sort of like the bidding war that there was for the Amazon headquarters, it's kind of a seems to be a bit of a race downward the way it is, you know, there's the different levels of which it's affecting the state and the county, the locality, and, and I guess that's one of the prime tensions. And I guess you fall somewhat on the side of states having more authority over local zoning decisions. Is that right, that you see localities as a prime impediment to greater density and affordability? Yes, local zoning rules are currently
4: a big cause of housing affordability problems and are also a big shaper of the way that new development can be done. Today, localities get their authority to implement land use regulations from their states. So, state policymakers have a role to play in, in shaping what that authority looks like and in ensuring that local zoning restrictions are being implemented with their effects on the state as a whole in mind. So, at the, the local level, the costs of Housing construction, for example, are felt most acutely. It's often the people who live directly next to a new development who are, are going to notice its downsides, for example, having a little bit more traffic in their neighborhood or more people parking on the street, whereas the benefits of new development are really widely dispersed. Primarily, they're going to go to the people who live in that new development. We don't know who they are at the time that the development's proposed, and they may not even live in that locality. So they don't get a a voice in that decision making process typically. But from the, the state level, policymakers have more of an incentive to weigh both the costs and the benefits of development and to consider the effects of land use restrictions across the state as a whole, not just, for example, within one small suburban jurisdiction where they're enforced. So from a legal perspective, as well as as from a policy perspective, state policymakers have a different perspective on land use restrictions relative to local policymakers and have a role to play in shaping how zoning rules can be implemented. And in some cases, in setting limits on the extent to which localities can, for example, regulate out housing construction. We've seen states, state policymakers, experimenting in this area with, for example, new laws that give homeowners across entire states the right to build an accessory dwelling unit. So to add a, a basement apartment or a garage apartment or a backyard cottage, several states have passed laws that prevent localities from banning accessory dwelling units.
9: There's a little bit of an issue with responsiveness to a community. The further it gets away from the locality and the kind of top down, obviously there needs to be a balance, but uh, there can be some, uh, some problems That wise, I know that things like somewhat agricultural uses, like confined animal feeding operations, that localities were banning. They sort of went in for capturing politicians to, at the state level, prevent the locality from banning, you know, a massive pig farm or or chicken operation that has some very drastic impacts, you know, just the smell, let alone uh, some of the environmental issues there. Is there any kind of Model for some kind of arbitration sort of between such interests
4: yeah I'm not sure that I can point you to a, a good model of that type of arbitration, but I think that's a really interesting and important question. Prior to zoning that localities used to try to to mediate these disputes, there was nuisance law that Property owners could use the courts to say, you know, my neighbor has this smelly chicken farm or my neighbor's polluting on my property or my neighbor's making too much noise and attempt to use the court system as a way to either stop the use that might have been causing the nuisance or to come to some agreement between the two conflicting property owners. That is a very costly way to try to come to a solution that that works for people. We know that zoning is also a very costly system in terms of causing lots of housing affordability problems and preventing people from living in the locations where their best job opportunities might be located. So some type of alternative system to either nuisance law or the current zoning system It could perhaps have some of the benefits of both. I don't know what that system looks like. There are international models of zoning that work very differently. For example, in Japan, at the national level, different zoning designations are determined, and then localities have the ability to implement where those different zoning designations are going to be within their jurisdictions. So there's less opportunity for something like very low density residential zoning under the Japanese system relative to what we have here.
1: Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com.
2: You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhusky-Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services.
1: Our feature was produced by Zero Rose. Kite Line is produced by Mia Beach. Our theme music is produced by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra.
2: Stay tuned for With Good Reason, coming up next on WFHB.
8: You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio.